Hey, what's going on? Happy Friday. Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drantz, who also covers the team for The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Lots to get into today. Uh, Obviously, Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Final last night. Florida wins in overtime. We can talk about that. Columbus remains very active. They make another deal uh, for a, a defenseman who is going to be a UFA in this case, and uh, also you have a, a, a new piece up at the Athletic uh, looking at some Canucks trade targets. Trancer. Tears, baby. Trancer? Tiered it. You I tiered what? it. You did tear it. I'm going to let you call your shot. Where do you want to start, buddy? Where, where do you want to start oh, man. today? You're going to have to lead me down the road today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Today, today, I'm more... You're I'm, playing hurt? I'm, pl- I'm playing guilty today. We're, I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow your lead, man. Just All right. Yeah, gently put your hand on my the stem of my back and lead uh, me lead okay. me in the direction you want. Um, That's fine. I'll try not we'll to get step on your toes. Two hours till the weekend, buddy. Two hours until the weekend. We can do it. Should have... <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> we can get through it. All right. In that case, then... Let's start. I mean, it is Canucks talk. I'll still get want, fired up. I just want to. I don't be clear. Want, oh no, I'm, I'm sure we'll find yeah. some way to. I'm, you I'm ready to point. go. Like I'm, I'm, I'm mostly just being self-deprecating here. Yes, no, yeah. I get it. We, I've been there. Um, we'll we'll start with the Canucks centric stuff. Then your latest, your latest tears piece that everyone knows and loves. Tears, uh, Canucks related tears up at the Athletic. It's a trade target tears ranking the best fits for Vancouver on the offseason trade block. And this is, we've done the exercise for UFA defensemen. We've done the exercise for UFA center centers. This is rolling it all into one. We know the two areas of need for this team, third line center, help on the blue line. Uh, these are potential trade targets uh, for each position. And uh, some interesting names on this list, ranging really the entire spectrum of like young Talent. guys, yeah, young guys, old established guys, guys, guys they can't afford, yeah, high paid guys, <laughs> cheap guys, really, really good players. Well, you guys, not as good players because it's all about optionality, right? I mean, that's that's really the league that we're covering these days. Is it's all about what you can accomplish, and and in terms of trades, the high salaried guy from a Canucks perspective obviously seems is like out of the equation in free agency. Mm-hmm. Because this team can't add a big salary, but the higher and more arduous a salary is, in some ways, the more likely they are to be dealt to a team that has bad contracts and, and a willingness to make the old school hockey trades. And and the team that doesn't have a big war chest of picks and prospects to go and and totally and, and sign a guy who's not we've, we've whose value this. isn't hampered by a contract. We've already right? seen this, right? Like the Canucks can shop by shopping for the inefficient deal or by bundling the good player with the inefficient deal. And that's a deal that this organization's been far too willing to make. But that also doesn't mean that every time you do that deal is a mistake, right? Like there are versions of that mm. trade. Uh, that type of trade that you can win you just have to manage the term like really you have to be careful about managing the term if if you were taking like a three-year flyer on Oliver Ekman Larson it would be one thing right the problem is the length of the deal 
The problem was that the Canucks staked, you know, all of Pedersen and Hughes' mid-20s on a bet that Ekman Larson would at least be able to fill, you know, Alex Edler's role. And maybe he does, but he certainly wasn't up to the task last year. With a player like Orion Johansson, who makes my list as like, you know, if they took back enough money, at the end of the day, you're talking about a six foot three, right-handed centerman from Vancouver. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think he has trade protection. He doesn't have trade doesn't. protection. And, you know, only two years of term left. Like, to me, that's a huge ticket, don't get me wrong, but... If you were able to bundle it with one of the deals that we know Vancouver would be willing to move, right, so that the cap hit added isn't as massive as we'd previously thought, then that becomes something interesting, something you're, you know, in my opinion anyway, probably worth considering, particularly given that, you know, Johansson, as often happens with some of these really skilled, assertive two-way players when they begin to lose their fastball, his five-on-five value is not obviously at star level anymore, but he's still a monster on the power play, mm. right? And, and, I mean, we've talked about it. What do the Canucks need still, right? Like, they still have a fifth, that's true, a fourth forward job open. Like, he's a potential answer there. He's not a penalty killer, really. That makes him sort of a suboptimal fit. But I, but I wanted to include him in addition to a player uh, like a Mike McLeod because I think the spectrum of possibilities is interesting to consider given that, you know, there's – in in some ways, the guys with worse contracts almost make more sense for the Canucks to try and acquire, given how limited their you know war chest of of tradable assets is. Yeah, and let's talk about Ryan Johansson for a second because it's a really interesting one to me for one reason, and we can get to this is because I'm not sure anyone knows yet exactly how Barry Trotz is going to put his stamp on the mm. national situation. So there's this kind of sense of possibility and opportunity there, right? Like, hey, maybe they would be interested in a lot of different things that you can come up with. And with Ryan Johansson, you know, as you said, it's a big ticket, but it's only two years. If you find a way to make it work, right? We're in this framework where we know they want to be competitive. They want to push for the playoffs. And so much of what when I'm trying to think about what this team should do, what I want to see them do is, okay, how can they try to achieve that goal without sacrificing too much for the future. And I think Johansson has at least the possibility to do that, to help them do that, because one, it's a high upside play, right? Like this is still a really talented player, as you said, not a star level guy anymore, but still a really talented player who can help you do a lot of different things. Not a perfect fit, but it's a high upside play that I could actually see moving the needle for you. And then the other side of it is, okay, if it doesn't work out, it's only two years. So you're not locking yourself in to this major anchor contract long-term down the road. You're taking kind of a two-year flyer on a guy with significant upside. And then the third part of it is, what's the acquisition cost going to be? It, yeah, I, I don't I don't want to say it would be nothing or anything like that. It wouldn't, especially not if you're sending money back the other way. But would it be relatively cheap compared to the potential upside on the ice. Well, especially because Nashville, we know, or we certainly suspect, especially with names like UC Soros being in the mix these days, right? Like, Mm -hmm. this is one of those teams that could really pull the shoot. And if Nashville really pulls the shoot under new general manager Barry Trotz and begins to sell aggressively, then, you know, it's one thing to have a $16 million cap liability over two years or a $16 million salary liability when you're trying to make the playoffs and you're banking on playoff revenue. And yep. it's another thing to have it if you're trying to be bad, right? And so 
is there an opportunity there, particularly for a team that has some bad money to send back or at least some less desirable money to send back? And this is sort of, too, where the, you know, Tyler Myers conversation. I mean, I've talked at length about how complicated, Mm -hmm. deceptively complicated, I think a Myers deal is given how late in the summer his signing bonus is paid out. Um, given his, you know, the the trade protection on his deal, like I think Arizona is a, a laughable possibility there. But once his bonus is paid out, for example, like Nashville is a team that has is on very few players no trade uh-huh. list. Great place to live, affordable place to live, um, and a team that you know is so newly rebuilding that I don't know that people have like wrapped their heads around it yet. Mm-hmm. And so you know that's the sort of possibility where all of a sudden you actually would be able to create value because of the cash you'd be saving a rebuilding well, team. Well, that, you just look at it. So after his bonus is paid, let's say you're you're building a package around Ryan Johansson and Tyler Myers. That would be because Ryan Johansson is just straight $8 million every year of the deal. There's no signing bonuses. Yep. There's no escalating, de-escalating, whatever. Just $8 million. So he has $16 million of cash left. So if you do that deal, you're saving Nashville $15 million of cash. You're, you're saving them so That's much. That's a huge amount. You're saving them so much that they might pay to do it either through retention or yep. or asset capital or both and that's the sort of i think problem solving mold like i'm not suggesting this is even like a realistic possibility so much as when i think about what a canuck summer could look like I, you know i think it's going to have to include this type of thinking if the team's really going to pull it off if they're really going to add the type of centerman that you know uh, this market wants to see them add if they're really going to find a way to, you know, add a add, add def- talent to the uh, along the blue line, right? Like, is there a world where you're saving Nashville enough money, um, you know, that you could also throw in a swap of, uh, you know, Jack Rathbone for Dante Fabro, something like mm. that. Uh, and mm-hmm. again, ju- these are just concepts. Yeah. But could you could you mine additional value either through the either in the form of retention, um, you know, an, an asset swap of the kind that I sort of just laid out, or or a combination of the two as a result of the money you would you would be saving a team like Nashville. Um it, it requires a big investment, a big step up from ownership, but it's sort of one of the best avenues available to a team that just doesn't have the sort sort of optionality that some of these other teams in the league do. And at a certain point from ownership's perspective, if you if the mandate is push for the playoffs, right, you're also not necessarily willing to consider buyouts. And we haven't heard that directly, but we know the you know, the past history of this organization is a reluctance a reluctance to buy out players. Well, and we have heard that they don't intend on using yeah, buyouts. Not I for mean, budget reasons. Right, but, exactly. But they haven't specifically said because ownership but doesn't want to. It's certainly convenient that hockey ops feels that way. Um, <laughs> but at a certain point, if you're if you're asking your management group to push for the playoffs, right? And to be aggressive and to try to take that next step, you have to make the financial resources available in some way. And yeah, would it hurt to trade Tyler Myers, right? Immediately after you pay him his signing bonus? Yes. But again, you have to be willing to flex your muscles at a certain point. And again, with Ryan Johansson, at least it's there's, you you can imagine the upside there, right? Like Mm. the upside risk calculus, because it's only a two year deal makes a ton of sense. Well, and let's not ignore, right, that the maneuver we just spelled out, mm-hmm. okay? Because it's fun to talk about. I think it's an interesting concept. But what becomes harder to wrap your head around is 
the format that we've presented this makes Ryan Johansson a $13 million player for next year. And you can understand someone writing the checks being like, for a third line center? Are we sure about this? Like, you, you better make the playoffs now. You better make the playoffs now. But isn't that isn't that kind of the situation we're already in? Like now, maybe you go, you know, you <laughs> you turn it from Wait. normal text to all caps if you do the Roger Hansen trade. But like, I feel like we're already in the you better make the playoffs mode here. Um, yeah, we probably are, but I mean that that puts a target on <laughs> a management group's back in a real way, yeah. and and that's worth noting and 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 bearing in mind here. I will say though, as we talk about this type of deal, it is an interesting way to think about Tyler Myers specifically because he's really. He's really the guy that unlocks this because he's expiring, right? And because he has the signing bonus where you can end up saving uh, some team or like a real significant amount of real cash, right? Yeah, like this I, is the guy we're talking about This team, as opposed to Garland or It's Besser. been a long time since this team flexed that sort of by Christian Ehrhoff by taking on the Brad Lukowicz deal mm-hmm. type financial muscle. It's been a long time. Um, Philadelphia kind of just did. A little bit, and I know yep. people. I know people like Flyers fans are like, "This actually saves them cash," and it's like, "There's a four million dollar lump sum signing bonus coming to Cal Peterson this summer." I mean, that is a big market team type move. the The Canucks haven't functioned in this way in a while, and in fact, you know, like the Dickinson. Once you do Dickinson for Stillman, and granted, the Canucks were then able to clear. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 60% of the Stillman commitment, all told, like he'd only lapsed 40% of his term before he was dealt to Buffalo. Like, it's really hard to understand that deal as something the Canucks were willing to um, part with a second round pick to do without understanding it as like primarily a salary dump as opposed to a cap dump. Obviously, both things were true, but the salary on the Dickinson deal stood out to me as explaining why the cost was so high to get off of that deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go look now, right? Like, L.A. just paid a second in a prospect to get off of, what, $8.7 million? Yep. Like, you look at that, and the Dickinson cost seems wildly out of whack. Zaitsev was four point what two five, second in a sixth. You know, I, I, like, again, the Dickinson commitment can't be understood – at the price point paid without recognizing that the backloaded nature of the deal made the salary a particularly onerous thing for the Canucks to hold. So, you know, I I like to be totally honest as I handicap it, do I think the Canucks would wait to move Myers after the signing bonus because there's an opportunity to flex their big market muscles? Or do I suspect that they'd be more willing to part with assets? In fact, yep to try and avoid uh, paying that lump sum sort of cost themselves, um, you know, and especially in a world where you think management's under pressure, you know, what's what's one way to earn some gratitude? Yeah, Clear salary, clear less in your cash commitment that the owner is making. So that's the thing to keep in mind here. I, just, I wouldn't be stunned to see them pay to get off of Myers with the with avoiding the signing bonus in mind. It's tough. Really hard to do though. No, no one wants to eat a five million dollar lump sum no. cost. And the thing is, man, as much as we have criticized the way that Patrick Elvin and Jim Rutherford have handled the salary cap situation, 
I got to say, like, I would feel for them in that, in that scenario because it feels like then you're being asked to do something without all of the tools that could potentially be at your disposal being made available to you, right? And you're – it's just – I don't know. That's a really tough situation. It's one thing if you are, you know, going through a rebuilding process, right? And it's like, hey – we're, we're not going to be doing as well at the gate here. We need to tighten our belts a little bit. I know it makes it tougher to gather assets, but this is what we're doing, right? Like, that could be the situation Nashville's in with Ryan Johansson. But it's another thing if you're like, hey, you really got to take a step forward. We have Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes. We want to win with them here. We want to, you know, make the playoffs. But maybe we don't have all the financial resources. That's a tough situation for management to be in. Well, it's a, it's a – it is. But it's also, I think, why – the ability to make hard choices, organizationally speaking, right, even above the management level, mm-hmm. um, we're going to be willing to rebuild, right? Like, I don't, I don't know if you heard this on the 32 Thoughts, but Friedman was talking about the San Jose Sharks. He's like, that's not going to be a classic teardown. And it's like, well, that's great news. If you're in the Pacific and you like, hear the Sharks being like, we're going to do this fast. It's also like, like teardown what? They're, they were to- they're horrible. You know what I mean? They're what's there to tear down. It, it's it's going to take you years to get off of all your terrible contracts. Yeah. Like they're, th- I mean, anyway, I, just a thing I think about, like you have to be able to make the tough decisions to be, to understand like, Hey, it sucks to pay a guy to not play for you. But if you don't have the buyout weapon in your quiver, if you don't buy out Brandon Sutter in the summer of or in the fall of 2020, mm-hmm. um, then you don't have the money to keep any of Markstrom Tanev to Foley. Yep, and you're massively set back. And and where one team in pretty similar circumstances with you know a, a weak supporting cast, some bad money on the books, but an elite young core was able to turn themselves into the team that we just saw win in overtime in the Stanley Cup final as a result of their moves that this summer, right? The Canucks arguably fundamentally compromised the team on the rise in a way that they're still sort of paying the bill for. So, uh, you know, it's it's a really tricky set of dynamics and choices, but that's that's the task at hand for an organization that kind of wants to burn the candle at both ends, that kind of wants to have it all, that wants to compete now and in the future. Uh, Ben's text in, here's a concept. Don't take on another bad contract. Deal Myers at the deadline for a bag of pucks. Then somebody else texts in, we only have one more year of cap hell. How many teams are in this position? Why get into more trouble this year? Those are reacting to the idea of trade an expiring contract for a longer contract at a bigger ticket in Ryan Johansson. And, you know, I can understand completely the idea of just hold Myers, trade him at the deadline when he's going to have value, when you can get a tangible asset. That's completely fair. I just think if you if you put yourself in the mindset of this management team, right, they want to add another center. They want to get better. They want to take a step forward. That's one of the tools you have at your disposal. And again, at least with Ryan Johansson, as you say, this is not an OEL term, right? This is, a, this is only extending one year beyond the Myers deal. And there's a chance that next year's deadline, if it doesn't work out, or even next summer, if you're willing to retain, you could move on Ryan Johansson, right? I don't see this as something where you're locking yourself in for the long term on a potential mistake. No, on man- but I get the hold Myers to the deadline takeout. Also, like I completely understand the wisdom of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I it's a good play. Holding Myers is a good play too. So, but the problem is, is at some point. This team just needs to free up the space to make moves. Yep. Like, I just don't think 
you can credibly come into next season and sell this market on Neil Zaman, third line center, and the Rick Tockett improvement is all we need, and we didn't upgrade the blue line beyond Heronic. Well, especially not when you've talked so much about the need for a third line center, right? It, well, and your and your comfort with the ability to clear cap space. Yeah, I mean they've telegraphed we're going to be able to do this despite the money we've committed. They've kind of scoffed at the idea, right? Explicitly, Tampa Bay's in this situation, right? They've they've kind of scoffed at the idea of painting themselves into the corner, and it's kind of on them to deliver now. And even with the Ryan Johansson possibility that we're kicking around, you know, he does still make $2 million more than Tyler Myers. So even if you did that, they would have to retain or you'd have to find another way to clear salary cap space, right, to even make it work. And well, that's with moving out Tyler Myers. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you make other choices, though. I mean, they, they do have the ability to add or to, like, sign Ethan Bear, for example, because yeah. remember, they're – they have the most cap committed includes like oh Pullman yeah and no Pearson for sure but I mean, LTI. like to fill out the rest of your roster I think you'd still have to move money elsewhere yeah probably you would right if you're adding two million it, it'd be tough it would be very very tough um before we go to break we're going to talk to Jonathan Wall but just one other name I wanted to uh, bring up from your trade target tiers list up at the athletic uh, interesting RFA center twenty five years old from the New Jersey Devils Michael McLeod who checks a lot of boxes uh, that the Canucks could potentially be looking for at their third-line center position. Yeah, I mean, the analogy that I'd make is, like, Nick Waugh, Wild Bill Carlson, right? Where it's like, this is a guy who's only got fourth-line opportunities mm. and has no path to ever getting more than that on a New Jersey Devils team that also has Nico Heischer, Dawson Mercer, and uh, a guy named Jack Hughes. Yes. So... He's never going to be more than a fourth-line center in New Jersey, but when I watch this guy play, when I watch some of the finish in, in tight, when I watch his puck skills, like there's no question in my mind that this guy has way more skill, way more puck skill than the counting stats indicate. He's right-handed. He's a fast skater. Um, he's got that like experience in the NHL, and he's sort of developed into a conscientious defensive guy. He won 60% of his draws last year. I mean, to me, this is the classic, like, bet on you know the next guy who could cement himself as a really good middle six guy your mm -hmm. next your next up and coming center before he breaks out type player he's an rfa and new jersey has significant things to do so this offseason so much work to do so much work to do now they also have a lot of cap space um personally i actually think the way to go about trying to get McLeod's probably an offer sheet, but we know those never happen in the NHL. I just think there's no real path where New Jersey can match like three and a half million, four million. Mm -hmm. um, and that would just cost you a second round pick in, in 2024, uh, which, you know, obviously I wouldn't love seeing the Canucks part well, with, but I've got some bad news. They've already parted with that pick. Oh, so they'd have to get it back. Yes. Ouch. Okay. So that's not a good path for the Canucks, but a trade of some kind, uh, you know, he's the sort of player I think that you could meaningfully part with assets for provided that you were able to get a deal done that made sense P provided that you were able to get like you know a two and a half times four mm. and you and you have him for his whole 20s and you bet that this is a middle six guy in worst case scenario if he's just a third line guy at, at you know two and a half three million you're not dead in the water yeah and right? the thing about McLeod is as you say because he's been stuck at fourth line center on New Jersey like his counting stats aren't amazing which suppresses his contract value but there's a chance for him to kind of break out and, and go into the 
middle six spot and and be good there, right? But just right now, he's he's negotiating this next deal as a fourth liner, which helps keep costing. Totally. Yeah. I just I, I think there's a unique opportunity there. I, I also have like the Boston lefties that I like, Greslick and Forbert. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think Boston's going to have to deal at least one of them, probably on the back foot. Uh, I think there's a lot of talent there, and and I still don't think you can you know underrate. Like, if you want Oliver Ekman Larson to bounce back next season, limiting his minutes as much as you can, right? Putting him in a position to rebuild some confidence, some value, um, to to help him avoid injury at his age, mm-hmm. you know, I think makes sense. Something I always called for this organization to do with Alex Edler, and, and I think they tried a few years, and then they were like, oh, this guy's still too good. We need him. <laughs> we need him when it counts. You know, I, I think those are sort of things to consider. I, I still think second pair lefty, if you were able to get it, for me is almost a bigger deal than adding, like, the perfect Hughes caddy. Mm. Just because, I, I, you know, we've seen it with Noah Juleson. We've seen it with Jordy Ben. Yep. You know, like, I don't even worry about who the Canucks put in that spot anymore. It's going to be fine. Uh, we will continue to get into Canucks trade targets throughout the course of the show. You can text in your questions or your potential targets, 650 six. 50 uh, but up next former member of the Canucks front office returns to the show Jonathan Wall uh, to talk about the offseason with us that's coming up next it is Canucks talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Trance live from the Kintech studio. 650! 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Our pal Jonathan Wall, former member of the Canucks front office, is going to join us in just a moment here uh, on the phone line. And in fact, I think uh, producer Dom has just told me that he is ready. So we will now welcome on to the show, as mentioned, former member of the Canucks front office, Jonathan Wall. Uh, Jonathan, always a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you? I'm great, guys. Thank you for having me on once again. Yeah, no, as I said, always, uh, always our pleasure. And as we uh, we we come close to the NHL offseason really getting underway here after the Stanley Cup final, you know, we're all looking ahead to what the Canucks are going to do, what other teams are going to do, and the fact of life again for NHL teams seems to be a flat, barely upward uh, salary cap, probably only going to raise by a million this year again. And uh, you know, you did so much work with the salary cap with the Canucks and it's one thing for the cap to be flat for a year or two that obviously poses difficulties for teams, but now that we're into such a long stretch of it really not rising significantly at all, do you think there'll be a sense almost of the the challenges posed by the flat cap kind of compounding for teams and becoming even more difficult because it's been in place for so long? Yeah, for sure. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, you've got, you know, a number of teams, obviously, who are in LTI this year. You've got a number of teams that have bonus overages, and it's just making it harder and harder for those teams to get out of that uh, out of that difficulty. So normally when you're planning, you're expecting there are going to be raises in the system year after year. And when that doesn't happen, obviously, you've sort of borrowed money technically against your future cap. And there's really nowhere for that borrowed money to to get paid back right now. John, with the dynamic of this offseason in particular, right, you've got the compounding issue of the flat cap and the pressure 
sort of continually beating in on these teams. But you've also got, I think, widespread long-term optimism in cap growth returning in the not-so-distant future. Are there any unintended consequences of this that someone with your experience might be able to uh, help sort of illuminate for us that, that we'd miss? Well, I'm looking at sort of some of the, the teams near the bottom who've got a ton of cap space, the Arizonas, Chicago's, you know, Detroit, uh, Anaheim. And I think there's a really interesting short-term leverage play for them right now because a lot of the contracts that teams might be looking to move might only be a year or two out. They may be looking to, they may be looking to pay a premium to move those contracts now to sort of free up money in the short term, knowing that it's going to be, you know, it is going to go up in the longer term. So I feel like you're in this sort of short-term crunch here that may lead to some interesting leverage plays for some teams. So in particular, in terms of a short-term leverage play, you're, you're talking about taking on the last year of an expiring, uh, something like that? Exactly, where you can help that team sort of mitigate their, their, their cap issues in the short term, get an asset back. And then if you are, you know, if those teams are sort of where they are right now, looking to grow in two or three years, those numbers are off the books anyway when these when these cap you know when the increases come so they'll be well situated to to move ahead uh, without those encumbrances. What's the profile of a team right now that you think is best suited for this moment? Like, is is it the team with a ton of excess draft capital and cap flexibility? Is it um, you know the the contender with a little bit of flexibility, like your Carolina example? Like, what what sort of position? What sort of position for a team is most advantageous given the super unique cap dynamics of this summer? I think it's really anyone who has flexibility. Like you mm. said, it could be flexibility with draft capital. It could be flexibility with cap space. It could be flexibility with, with numbers of contracts. So I think anyone who does have that flexibility could be situated to, to potentially get a legitimate player for almost, almost no asset value or, you know, potentially being paid to take that player. Mm. So I think, you know, the Carolina you mentioned, they may be able to target a really good player that might be slightly overpaid and be able to get that player for next to nothing to, um, to help their team while also taking advantage of a team that might be in a cap crunch. We've already seen one trade uh, leading into this offseason, the three-way deal between Columbus, Philly, and L.A., which involved L.A. only getting cap space back as an asset and paying a second-round pick and uh, and a defenseman prospect to get that cap space. And I know a lot of people were saying, you know, it was actually pretty cheap for them when you look at the amount of dollars they were able to clear for them to do that deal. Once there's kind of a precedent set at this time on the calendar for, okay, L.A. paid X amount to clear, you know, six million or whatever it was in salary cap space how how much does that actually set the market for teams you know in the coming weeks that are trying to also move money does that really guide what what's uh what teams are going to be able to do and how much they're going to have to pay to clear space i i mean it does in some ways it sort of sets the start of the market but in reality as the number of teams that are willing and able to take on these type of contracts start to dwindle or they mm. start moving in a direction, you may actually find the market for these type of transaction goes up mm. where if there's only one or two teams that are still willing to do this, they may be able to, I don't want to use a word, but extort more capital from a team who's desperate to move out. So it may have been a good situation for all those three teams to, to get their business done early. They kind of were you know, able to, to do it kind of under the radar a bit and then move on with some signings after the fact as well. 
does that dynamic apply just kind of in general, right? Because, you know, we all know there's only so much cap space out there in the league in total. A huge chunk of it is going to be gone on July 1st. If you are able to be patient as a team, whether it's, you know, trying to sign UFAs who are still on the market, trying to help other teams with their salary cap space, do, do you have a better chance of really using that leverage if you are willing to just be a little bit more patient and wait down the road? Man, like it, it's it's such a great point, Jamie. Like the the patience on July one, sort of that poker face to be able to sort of sit back and wait for things to come to you, it's really hard. When you're in those rooms, you've got your owner calling, you've got your coach calling, you've got your manager calling, you've got all these people that are you know excited to sort of get the you know the next great player. But if you're able to just hold off a little bit, you're going to find that you might be able to get instead of signing a. a a UFA to a three-year deal, you might be able to get a comparable player on a one-year deal where you're not competing against other teams and driving the cost up. The, the, the price is already fixed. So again, if you're, if you're one of those teams is okay to be patient for a little bit, I do think there will be value coming your way. John, we got, we had a sign in trade today, like a real team loaned another team, the eighth yep. year that only they could sign and, and was able to recoup, you know, a, a, a draft pick that's probably around earlier than the usual. We traded a UFA's rights uh, yep. three weeks before they hit the market. Um, the advantages of doing a sign and trade for the team holding the expiring right um, are not significant. And in fact, the advantages one way or the other are not significant, which is why we don't usually see these types of deals uh, does this mean anything? Are we going to see this more or was this a unique one-off in your view? It's a really good question. I don't, you know, it, it actually caught me off guard when I, I saw online that his contract, like it's going to expire. I think when he's 36. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I remember looking at him as a, as a prospect and as a, a draft player. And the fact that, you know, they're talking about him as a 36 year old player now was kind of a little scary, <laughs> but um, I always thought of him as a young player. But I, I think it just depends. It depends on if you're able to maybe use that eighth year to get the cap hit down a little bit. Mm. I mean, that's a that's a long way planning out. And I think everyone's quick to make um, sometimes to make um, judgments on these deals. But in reality, you know, that extra year we're going to find out. Unfortunately, you're going to have to wait a while and see where where his game goes and where he's at. And it might look like a, a stroke of genius getting that extra year, but it's going to be a long time till you figure that out. We also have now seen multiple players begin to kind of use their quote-unquote pre-agency <laughs> to call their shot. Um, the Matthew Kachuk model appears to have been adopted by both Alex Debrinket and Pierre-Luc Dubois. If we are moving toward a world, a more NBA-style world, where there's this player movement window prior to guys hitting unrestricted free agency and that it might impact some of the absolute star players in this game going forward. Does that, in your view, change how teams might go about hoarding assets or, or team building uh, going forward here? Well, I think you know, it's a good point. It, it, it's easy to look at some of the contracts that are signed, whether you know they're short-term bridge or long-term contracts. And ultimately, I think people somewhat forget that it does take two parties to sign a contract. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the agent's job is to keep their players is sort of balance the long-term risk of injury with sort of that, that ability to hit the market at the right time, you know, either as the caps going up or as they hit free agency or they're a year from free agency and kind of 
can control their situation. I think it just, again, sort of puts more onus on teams just to do right by their players. Mm. I know when I was in Vancouver, I mean, it started before the draft. I know when Mike came in, you know, we changed our approach at the combine even, and we wanted, you know, we wanted to get information. We wanted to have a good process, but we also wanted to have those players leaving our, our room, our meetings and feeling good about our organization and feeling confident in what we were doing. And then it would go to the draft and the immediate contact with our player development staff, Stan Smeal and Ryan Johnson, Chris Higgins, and all those guys, and immediately bringing the players into the fold. And then, you know, going from there, development camps, training camp, Penticton, all these different things that we did, we being the Canucks at the time, to really create this feeling of players wanting to stay in Vancouver. And I think, you know, the ownership, I know they get criticized for a bunch of stuff, but the way they treated the players and the way they, you know, the, the off-cap spending that they did with the chef and the travel and a lot of those things mm. was really top-notch. And I think you're trying to create a situation where the players feel like they want to be in the city, they want to play for the organization, but they also need to feel like they have a chance to win. So I think the teams that are really doing those things well are going are gonna to find their players are wanting to stay. And, you know, sometimes we'll, you'll see comments when a player signs, and like, oh, wow, I can't believe so-and-so re-signed in X city but it does tell you a bit about how they feel they've been treated and their experience there that they do want to commit to that city. Well, and I mean, to that point, it's interesting, you know, we, we saw the, uh, the Vladislav Gavrikov two year deal, right. And we wondered if that could be a trend as, as guys get to try to get out on the market again, when the salary cap goes up, but we've also recently seen, you know, Cole Caulfield for eight years in Montreal, Damon Severson, eight years in Columbus. So that the value of certainty and knowing where you're going to be, uh, still, still holds a lot of weight for players. Uh, Hey, Jonathan, before we let you go, I know the, uh, the Penticton young stars schedule for September was released uh, not that long ago. I know you're still a big part of that tournament. Uh, just share what you can with us about the schedule and what it's going to be like this year. And I mean, also just give you a chance to talk about how great the tournament is. No, thank you. I mean, it's, uh, you know, Penticton's, uh, you know, Penticton's up and coming here in general. Um, you know, a lot of we're seeing, you know, to put my other hat on, you know, the, the real estate market here is, is being really, uh, really booming a bit right now. We're seeing a lot of relocations to the area and, uh, you know, people are, are excited to come and we're seeing the fans are excited to come to Penticton for the young stars. Um, you know, for the teams to sign on to a two-year extension was huge for, for our group in Penticton. It gave us some certainty to do some, some really good planning, some really cool events. So I'm really excited that uh, this year, I think, Thomas, did you write an article last year about the referee development yes. that's gone on at Young Stars? I did. Yeah. So again, that's something we've been really proud of. And, and when I was with the Canucks, seeing these young officials that had been in Penticton and seeing them at the NHL level. So we've worked with, with BC Hockey. We're actually going to do an officials clinic this year as part mm. of Young Stars. So we're going to work with, with BC Hockey. We're going to have you know eight or ten of the top young officials in Penticton working the tournament. Uh, BC Hockey Hall of Fame alumni officials, and we're going to actually do a, a great day of, um, you know, of, of referee building for for minor hockey, which I think is a huge part of what we're trying to do in Penticton. We're trying to build sort of a festival of hockey, and that's an event that I, like I'm really excited about. We've got a minor hockey skills clinic. We've got our party on the plaza. Cami Granado has agreed to do a uh, a mentorship um, meeting with a, a group of minor hockey players in Penticton. So we're really trying to build out the celebration of hockey and, and really keep drawing people into Penticton for that. 
Well, and another part of the schedule that I'm really excited about is the uh, the exhibition BCHL game between the the V's and the Chilliwack Chiefs. And of course, when you talk about yeah. making it a celebration of hockey in Penticton, the V's such a historic, such a you know iconic uh, minor hockey franchise in in British Columbia. So that one is going to be really cool too. And that's exactly part of it. You know, we worked with the V's. Uh, we have worked with them, you know, since the uh, inception of the tournament. But we work with them again this year, and really wanted to make sure the schedule could could accommodate that game because as you said we want this to be a a celebration of hockey at all levels and i think we're touching on minor hockey we're touching on minor hockey officials we're touching on the bchl we're touching on prospects uh it's just going to be another great uh, great weekend of hockey in penticton and and really again put the put the focus of the hockey world on on penticton again which is which is great jonathan really appreciate the time uh, we're looking forward to the young stars in september have a great weekend thanks guys have a great weekend that is Jonathan Wall, longtime member of the Canucks front office and uh, coming on to talk a little bit about Young Stars, but also just share his expertise navigating the salary cap as it is going to be difficult once again uh, for teams this off season. I thought that was an interesting point he made about just, hey, okay, Philly got one price to to clear salary cap space, but that's when there's theoretically a lot more teams that could do it. As that number dwindles, it could become more and more expensive to do it. And I mean, that's something that ties back into the Tyler Myers conversation, right? Like if you are going to hold him until September and then you want to make the deal, well, the number of suitors left at the table to potentially take on a $6 million cap hit at that point, even though there's no real, there's not that much real money changing hands. Like you could be dealing with one or two teams at that point, And then the price starts to get out of whack. Yeah. Look, it's going to be super challenging. And, and, you know, I think the, most interesting thing that John was talking about there was the teams that are going to be are going to have an edge just have options, mm. right? The ability to problem solve because you don't know, and increasingly you don't know what's coming, right? You don't know which RFA is going to pull out the Matthew Kachuk playbook, right? You don't know um, whether or not a UFA might be open to a sign-in trade, mm-hmm. right? There's all these new avenues that are emerging quickly. And, and honestly, we could see that change even more rapidly in, in terms of, you know, if if we start to see general managers really consider the offer sheet route as a, as a productive one or, or one worth walking down. Uh, if we start to see, you know, um, changes in terms of how teams draft perhaps for positional value, right? Given, given the availability of wingers, uh, you know, right now. Uh, it's going to be it, – it's one of those situations where just having the ability to change course, having mm. the ability to seize opportunities, I, I think is really going to be the name of the game, even once the cap starts going up again. Like, I really think teams need to challenge themselves to think about roster construction a little bit differently, in part because there are teams that already do. And, and those teams are accruing these advantages. Like, we've seen this in Vegas now, in Tampa Bay. I mean, I know a lot of attention has been on, like, Stone on LTI until the playoffs versus Kucherov on LTI until the playoffs. But also, you know, we talked about Nick Waugh and Nick Hague, mm-hmm. right, not getting offer-sheeted last summer, right? I mean, <laughs> any team could have absolutely thrown a cherry bomb in in the Golden Knights toilet bowl here uh, during during the offseason last year, just like in in the summer of twenty or the fall of twenty twenty, everyone could have done it to the Tampa Bay Lightning with Ross Colton, Sergeyev, uh, Sorelli, Sorelli, and Cernak. Cernak, yeah. I mean, 
I mean, how did no one? And no one challenged him. How did no one? Well, and then, and then, you know, they make the finals, right? And it's like, yeah, the team that manages the cap best makes the final. Like, shocker. But don't complain about it. No, that's be, the thing. Be it mad at your own it executive. It was just in their control. Like, you they, had, blown... they, they had to do a lot right, too, obviously. But, like, it's an adversarial sport. You it, had the chance to mess with them. Everyone could have blown it up if they wanted. So, I mean, it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, I think having options. And, and this is one thing, you know, Brad Trilliving in Toronto landed, landed Shane Doan great hire mm-hmm. for the Maple Leafs. can't escape the thought when I look at that team and when I look at their cap friendly page and their books there's almost no one on that team you couldn't deal for value John Tavares is probably it yeah and even then like at the end of the day you're talking about a point per game centerman you know like even then if he didn't have the full NMC you probably could deal him you'd have to retain too but to get don't do don't do the value. Vancouver Tavares sucks thing. I'm not saying don't. he sucks. He's making eleven million dollars. Don't though. do the don't do the guffawing. I, I'm not he's saying clearly, he sucks, man. Yeah, Just yeah. saying it's an eleven you million know, dollar ticket. Uh, yeah, I, you can move that easy, man. I'm telling you, easy. You'd, you'd still have to retain though. That's all I'm saying. You would or or take money back. Sure, but you could trade that easy. Oh, um, yeah. That's that's the sound I make every time people are like. You know, favorably comparing JT Miller's contract to the Tavares deal or something outrageous oh. like that. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, um, they have optionality. They can, if they want to detonate, they can do it so quickly. And this is where, you know, the idea of San Jose being unwilling to rebuild amuses me so much because there's nothing they can do. Like, no. you're stuck with Vlasic. You're stuck with Couture. Um, you couldn't move Carlson and he had a historic season. You know, I mean, it's... There's no there's no routes for that team to short circuit a rebuild. There's no routes for them to short circuit a demolition. Yeah, it's again, it the funny the funniest thing to me is you are already really bad. You are already one of the worst teams in the league. You know what I mean? So it's like it's one thing to be like, "Hey, we're not going to rebuild when you were the ninth seed in the West." Yeah, just, like, no, we're going to keep pushing. It's like you are already bad. Just you are already terrible. Just sit in it and accumulate because you have too many contracts that are going to prevent you from being competitive anyway. You know, like your best bet is to just sit in it Uh, anyway this is where i think the canucks are going to get into trouble because or are in trouble going into this offseason they just don't have a lot of optionality on their roster we knew that in advance Uh, like we knew that we talked about it endlessly after the management change occurred Mm -hmm. and with the series of choices that they made they've actually removed more optionality from it even as they've you know arguably upgraded well i think they have upgraded the blue line talent at their disposal. So it's it's a really challenging summer to be positioned like the Canucks, and, and I'm really curious to see how some of the creative teams with that flexibility begin to use it, um, you know, especially, you know, once Carolina starts to do their business and, you know, some of those teams that really, like Vegas too, some of those teams that really nail it year after year, uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how they decide or think about navigating this offseason and contrast it with how the balance of the league does because – there is massive opportunity. Uh, Brandon in Vancouver, just quick point on offer sheets. He says, I know we always talk about offer sheets, but does no one ever consider it's the player who decides to sign or not? It's not a video game. Why I, would they leave I, a great I hate city this. and I winning hate the, situation? Well, I mean, I mean. Well, money talks. That's why they would do it. 
Yeah, right? Like, like, like you offer them more money than than Vegas or Tampa or whoever can afford to pay them. NHL players who are offer sheet eligible are the only people on the planet who hate money, according to hockey fans. <laughs> like, just just think about it for two seconds. Just think about it. Apply rational self interest. Think about it. Also, we do see players sign offer sheets, right? Like. Sometimes they get matched, but Kakaniemi, it does happen. Not not super often. No. But it does happen. Shea Weber. But I mean, it doesn't happen because teams don't really believe in it as no, a road to add talent. I don't think teams are like pounding no. down the doors of RFAs and they're just like, no, I couldn't. I there's, couldn't possibly. There's an ingrained conservatism that prevents it. And and fundamentally though, like have have you ever thought that every NHL player hates money? No, I've I know NHL players. They don't hate money. Well, and the other part of this is <laughs> like I, I can see the point when it's Vegas. Play the ah uh, sound effect. I can see the point where it's Vegas <laughs> or where it's Tampa Bay or something like that. Oh, but RFAs exist on bad teams too, <laughs> right? And in bad situations, and they don't get offer sheets either. You know what I mean? Like if that was the driving factor, then we would still see offer sheets from players in bad situations or on bad teams. And we don't see that. It's an argument that falls apart on his face. I have no idea why anyone ever repeats it. <laughs> Right. Very good. Um, 650-650, if you want uh, your argument to be ripped into by Drance, you can text in to the Dunbar Lover text message inbox. Uh, final hour of the show coming up here. It is Canucks Talk Sports at 650. That's not what happened. I watched the game. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Vancouver sports fans. Halford and Bruff in the morning. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Happy Friday, Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strands. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, some texts I do want to read that kind of tie into the trade targets conversation. But uh, just before that, I wanted to pass along reporting from uh, from Rick Dollywall saying that uh, Ethan Bear, Canucks defenseman, RFA, uh, considering surgery or surgeries being talked about for the shoulder injury he picked up at the World Championships, uh, could miss a few months from this point, but also Dollywall saying there are options that would avoid surgery and that would allow him to keep playing. So just wanted to pass that along. I mean, we'll see where that goes. Obviously, already a complicated situation with Ethan Bear and the RFA, just with the Canucks salary cap picture, right? It's it's going to be tricky to find a deal that works, uh, especially if it's not a one-year deal. And then this adds... A, another potential wrinkle, another potential layer to those negotiations. Yeah, for sure. It's a t- bad time to get hurt. Oh, yeah. Um, as a as an expiring RFA, although, you know, presuming that he's still qualified, the arbitration route, um, you know, he'll be okay. Uh, but, you know, you, you do sort of wonder. I mean, one way for the Canucks to clear out cap space, like one, one thing we say, or I say anyway, when I say the Canucks are over the cap, is I'm factoring in... Ethan at Bear. least at least 2.2 2.5 for Ethan Bear. Mm-hmm. Now, if the Canucks don't qualify or retain Ethan Bear, they have to replace yes. a guy who we're all penciling in to play top 4 minutes for them on the right side. 
And guess what? That's going to be hard to do for 2.5 in a world where Severson and Gavrikov are $6 million players on average. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't talked about the Severson deal, other than me mentioning a sign-in trade to yep. Jay Wall. I liked the Provorov deal for Columbus uh-huh. because, despite everyone always insisting that I'm a build-through-the-draft guy, I'm not. I'm a get-draft capital so you can buy good players, and I don't hate buying good players, even if you're a rebuilding team, provided that the purchase doesn't harm your ability to hit your ceiling. Mm-hmm. And I thought the Provorov deal qualified. The Severson deal, because of the term involved, I think that's a different matter. I think that's a far riskier bet for a Columbus Blue Jackets team that's going to be hard pressed to be what more than tenth in the in the West in it, the East, even if things break right for them. This is like this is just screaming a desperation summer for Yarmo Kekalainen yeah. and the Columbus Columbus Blue Jackets. And man, I know there were injuries last year with Zacharensky and other players. You're making the coaching change. You're bringing in Mike Babcock but they had a lot of ground to make up between them and playoff contention. And okay, you've added Provorov and Severson. Those two guys are going to help your blue line. What do you have at center? Well, what there, do you have at center? They were 34 31st in goals scored last year. Yeah. Like there there's just this feels <laughs> like they have like no a centerman. Ha- a Hail Mary that okay, it, it helps you. There's no doubt they're going to be well, better than well, next year. It but. does, but this is one that limits your ceiling because 2-3 years from now, right? Mm-hmm. When Severson's 31, 32, 33 and starts to reasonably encounter diminishing returns and they th- those diminishing returns might happen sooner, mm-hmm. you know, that that deal and, and we'll have to see the structure and, and exactly how buyoutable it is and, and on and on. But I mean, you know, there's there's a chance that that could really be an anchor for them going forward. And, and now you're sort of looking at a four year span here where you've got almost 15 or 16 million. Committed to Severson, Goodbranson, and Elvis Merzlikens. And it's like, you know, I, I mean, you better hope Merzlikens bounces back, right? You you better hope Goodbranson's at least playable. And, and you better hope Severson holds up. And, I mean, those are pretty hopeful bets in my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that's, that's a lot to ask. So, you know, this to me was a totally different school. From the Provorov deal, I thought this was a this was a this was a deal that significantly exceeded my risk tolerance and and points in a direction that uh, you know I, I think Columbus is a bit unwise for taking. Yeah, it's uh, it's a classic. We're desperate to be good right now, even if it harms us in the uh, in the future. For from a team that has so long to go, it's it's it's, it's textbook NHL in a lot of ways. Well, and I'm I am curious now to see what they do on the right side because. You know, there's a lot of players there. Well, and this gets to a couple of the texts that came in, right? So one just saying, uh, since the Blue Jackets are revamping their blue line, what about Andrew Peak? Another one says, uh, interested in your guys' opinion on this. Do you think the Canucks would have interest in Adam Boakvist as Columbus now has an abundance of D-men? Wierenski, uh, Severson, Provolov, Eurosec coming up. Uh, he says that leaves... Boakvist, Bean, Peak, Goodbranson to the bottom pair. That's from Isaac from the WAC. So a couple of different Blue Jackets defensemen now being asked about. And I know Peak was on your uh, trade targets tier article as well as a potential option. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, all of them are interesting to me. Like Bean, Boakvist, Peak are all interesting to me for sure. I, I probably Bean and... Now, when was Bean drafted? Is Bean a, um, a Rutherford pick from Carolina? 2016? No. No. Um, but, uh, okay. So, but, uh, you know, Bockfist to me would be 
a little bit redundant. Like how many, how many guys under six foot who move the puck can you realistically ice at the same time mm-hmm. before your your blue line's problematic? Well, before you run into diminishing returns, right? And before you like. <laughs> How much have we talked about this team's penalty kill? You know what I mean? You, like, you need to start to add those pieces at some point. Now, you know, Peak played more of a shutdown role. He's six foot three, he's 200 pounds. Like, that's a that's a different, that's more interesting to me mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. I still view Peak as a tweener. Like, I think, although he played a lot of PK for Columbus and played in a shutdown role, I kind of think he's miscast there. I think he's more of a puck mover who's big than a defensive shutdown guy. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he's a dynamic enough puck mover to really be like a power play quarterback. Or He's he, he's one of those four or five tweeners. So he's like young, cheap Tyler Myers is what you're saying? Yeah, one of those four or five yeah. tweeners. But I like him at, you know, three more years with $2.75 million of, you know, contract, like some cost certainty built in, if you think he can be a four or a five, right? Like he only has to be a third pair guy at 2.75 to basically return value. I think he's a decent bet to be able to do that in a better environment than, you know, the one he was kind of thrown under uh, on an, on a shorthanded blue jackets team. And then Bean too, like beans, a puck mover, pure and simple. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you need to give him a fair bit of power play time for him to be effective. Um, but he's got a little more, I don't know. I don't know that Bean is a good fit, but he certainly would help this team move the puck. Yeah. I, I his his real value is being able to play the right side. I just don't know. Like, are you going to do that? Like, are you going to do Bean and Quinn Hughes? Well, that's the thing. You if know. you're not going to play him with Quinn Hughes, then you're putting him on the third pair, mm-hmm. and then you know that that becomes a little bit tough in terms of paying for that. If you're the Canucks, like that's too low leverage, a roster spot. I feel like the you know, and in building my trade tiers list, like I was really focused on finding defensive oriented lefties. Yeah. Cause I kind of think that's what they need the most. Um, you know, I'm comfortable with bear and or whomever on Hughes's right side. Right. I, I'm, I'd be mostly looking for like a defensive guy I can play with Hronik. Absolutely, and if I'm the Canucks, and who's like your top choice penalty killer, right? If you were totally. if you were designing the ideal option in a lab, that's who it would be like. Yeah, support Hronik defensively and kill penalties for us, and we don't care what you do in terms of offensive production. That's what we need from well, you. Well, that's why I'd far prefer to see a team pay sixty cents for a four, like a team like the Canucks for a Forbert or a Greslick, as opposed to paying you know a, a dollar on on the dollar for brandon carlo even if in your mind's eye brandon carlo is like the perfect the higher up quinn hughes yeah. caddy well no just like he'd be the guy who you'd immediately slot on that top pair and be like hey we're set for four years you know mm. like we've got this big mobile and he's not super physical though but like a big mobile shutdown guy with quinn hughes uh, and we and we like that combo i mean i like that combo in my mind's eye i just think the value is not really there given that you know I think Quinn Hughes, like, I don't think Quinn Hughes gets more out of Brandon Carlo than he would out of Luke Shen, that he would out of anybody you can find. Uh, I just think his ability to be a one-man breakout machine insulates sort of non-puck-moving defensive guys so significantly that you can kind of slot replacement-level guys up there and get really good returns out of it. Yeah, and, I mean, that's part of... 
fully taking advantage of what Quinn having Quinn Hughes on your roster does for you, right? That you don't need to use some of your very scarce scarce resources to find the perfect partner for him. You can you can use that attention elsewhere elsewhere on the roster. I still think one tragedy is that they haven't drafted just a bunch of like tall drinks of water on the right side <laughs> who are like pressing to make the league now. Mm. I guess Jet Wu might be the example. Jet Wu. I'd be curious to see if they if they gave Jet Wu a shot. Because those are the types of guys whose value can spike so significantly, almost like a uh, pump and dump. Mm. Like try and build. Get him def- with Quinn Hughes for a year, and people are like, "Wow, Jet Wu! Like his numbers look well, great. Well, like he if, really held up." If you'd ever done it with Chatfield, right? Yeah. Oh, wow, you know, yeah. and it's just like, and and then you have this massive, pr- potentially overvalued asset. I mean, that would be. I would. I would have loved to see a team take advantage of that superpower, just because it's so rare. Like, Brian Campbell used to do it. Everyone who played with Brian Campbell got paid. Yeah, to have a player who it almost doesn't matter who they're playing with. You know what I mean? And obviously it does. Like, every it matters for every player. But to the degree to which Quinn Hughes can do it on his own as a defenseman is so incredibly rare around the NHL. There's going to be, in 10 years, you're going to have, like, an elephant graveyard of bad contracts signed because this guy got to play with Quinn Hughes. <laughs> like, I legitimately think... That you're going to see like Noah Juleson get a one-way this summer mm. based off of what he did down the stretch. And so he'll be like another name to add to the list. Yeah. Uh, and, the, uh, you know, I was thinking about uh, the Lane Peterson experience too. Like add Elias Pettersson to that list of guys. You know, you put him with Elias Pettersson and he's going to help you get paid. He's going to help you stay in the league. He's going to do something uh, really good for you. The other part of the Columbus discussion, right, beyond just their, their blue line, and I agree that – you got to think at some point they'd be open to moving some of those guys with the additions they've made. Uh, hey, what about your guy Nick Blankenberg? Could he be on the uh, uh, on the trade block all of a sudden? No, uh, <laughs> no, he's far too good for that. Who would well, ever? Who no, would ever I trade mean, Nick Blankenberg. No, but he, uh, he's, he's cheap. He's cheap. He's thing. yeah, and I mean, Bockvist and Bean bring similar stuff to the table, right? Peak is different, but he's paid already. Mm-hmm. Blankenberg is a different type of player, right? Because he's such a mean piece of work. Like he's just a he plays with a level of cruelty in his game that I just absolutely love. The other part of the Columbus discussion is because I don't know that you can make all of these moves and take on the future risk of the Damon Severson contract. You know, jettison the value of a first round pick for Ivan Provorov, and then go into this season with the forward group they currently have, right? With Boone Jenner as your first-line center and Jack Rosovic as your second-line center, potentially. So the question becomes, are they done, or do they, in a way, you know, with all the the draft capital they have and the prospects they have, do they still feel almost more pressure at this point, having made the moves they already have done, to go out and take another big swing, to add somebody up front uh, that can help Johnny Gaudreau, that can help Patrick Laine, and can like at least make them theoretically more of a legitimate playoff contender. And, you know, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Uh, can you guess where I'm going with this, Trancer? I can't. JT Miller. Oh. If they're making win-now moves, they want a center at the top of their lineup. People are texting in about it. I don't think there's a fit there. Fair enough. I mean, he'd help them score, right? And they do need a center. I think there's a hockey fit there. I just 
have never got the sense that as much as people want to send JT Miller back to Ohio, like in this market anyway, it mm-hmm. feels like the Blue Jackets constantly come up. I've never gotten the sense that they've been among the teams interested. So I don't know. I just Fair don't enough. I just don't take the possibility very seriously. Um I do think there's like I understand why I'm not saying anyone is texting in about it. Right? I'm not saying anyone is wrong for yeah, bringing yeah, yeah, up yeah. the possibility. But when the possibility feels this obvious and you never hear anything about it and you've never heard any smoke around it, it's always worth considering that there's a reason for that. You know, in consuming hockey media, especially at this time of year, I think it's really helpful to always take a step back and be like, why am I hearing this and and why am I hearing it in this way? Right. And sometimes when there's an absolute absence of smoke, that speaks volumes. Yeah, that's an interesting way. Uh, to put it, because there are a lot of reasons why it would make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, if you're just looking at it in a vacuum and not reading any of the reporting or anything, going back to last year, right? There are a lot of reasons why it could potentially make sense. But uh, who knows? I, I suspect, as you say, they will be looking elsewhere um, as much as people uh, <laughs> as much as people are texting in about JT to Columbus in the 650-650 uh, Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. So the other part about the Severson deal is, I mean, another... People, people this week, man are trying to send JT Miller to Winnipeg and to go play for Mike Babcock like <laughs> guys I've been I've been as critical of that contract as anybody but like w- what did this guy do to you uh it's uh just ease up it's it's his home state ease up poor guy ease up no, he doesn't deserve this. Uh, we did have somebody texting in. How <laughs> you guys are like trying to banish him. This is like literally people are, tra- are uh, these are not like trade proposals. These are like exile. No, 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 no. Just Blue, no, cruel people, and unusual. People here, the Winnipeg one is different, but people here, Columbus needs a center. And of course you're going to think, oh, hey, well, what about JT Miller? Of course you are. Of course you're going to think that way. It's not about punishing him as much as uh, Mike Babcock is there now. Uh, somebody did text in random question. How long until Patrick line asks for a trade because of Mike Babcock? That's going to be a fascinating dynamic there in, uh, in Columbus to see how it goes with some young players with guy like Johnny Gaudreau, Patrick line, uh, going to be very, very interesting, uh, to watch coming up. So the other part of, um, the other part of the Damon Severson contract is, well, there's a couple things, right? One is another top UFA defenseman off the market well before July 1st, right? So now Gavrikov and Damon Severson, probably the top two guys in terms of demand that was going to be out there, potential AAV, all of that. They're off the boards. Uh, big news for my guy, Ryan Graves, who, who's going to poise to cash in now if he actually gets to July 1st. Um, so that's part of it. Is I that- wonder, though. Do you think the Devils are going to be able to find a Graves landing spot? Do you think the Devils think they're going to consider resigning him? Uh, they probably consider it. The Devils are interesting because I don't think they do. So much of their work is at forward, right? And obviously, with Brat and Timo Meyer, those are two big, well, big tickets that I, they're going to have to account for. I mean, Kevin Ball played so well mm. for them, so you've got that lefty option, right, uh, on your third pair. You've got Luke Hughes. You've coming. got Luke Hughes coming, mm-hmm. and you've got Simone Nemich coming. Mm-hmm. Simon Nemich. Yeah, you probably don't have space, just from a on-ice perspective. Yeah, I mean. Right, you've already got Dougie Hamilton, John Marino, Siegenthaler, Hughes, Nemich, Ball, as you said, who's cheap and played well. That's six guys. Yeah, that's six guys right So, there. you know, are you better off finding, like, a $1.5 million dude, right? Are you better off... Honestly, are you better off going out and getting like Shen? 
you know, even if it's 2.5, as opposed to bringing in, you know, graves at full value. I, I, it's, yeah, the Devils can't manage this much better than that. No, no. My goodness. Oh, no, we've got Severson and, and Graves expiring, but we've yep. got Hughes and Nemich we can rely on next year. What a what a luxury. Picked Holy up cow. A, picked up a third-round pick for Severson out the door Pr- as well. Pretty Not nice. Bad. So, I mean, one, it's thinning out the top of the defenseman UFA market, and if the Canucks were ever going to put themselves in a position to bid on somebody like Graves, and I don't think that's realistic, but I think it becomes even more difficult now given the demand that he will be in when the time comes. Uh, the other question is, so eight-year deal for a right-shot defenseman. Is this a comparable, does this guide the eventual Philip Hronick extension negotiations uh, in your eyes, Drance? Interesting. Um, because maybe Severson is obviously a little bit older. His, he does his rate statistics are not as good as uh, Philip Hronick's, but he does have a history of putting up putting up points he has a longer track record it's all ufa years so as opposed to a little bit of uh, an rfa negotiation as it will be yeah but it's an it's an arbitration eligible rfa year i mean it's not but um it'll it'll restrain the value a little bit i mean yeah like heronic has scored a lot more he scored a lot more goals and he's produced uh points at a at a like not insignificantly higher rate Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it's it's hard to project. I think the fact is, though, is that the eight years mitigates the term here. Well, it mitigates the AAV. Exactly. It mitigates the AAV. So, yeah, Excuse I think me, that's the key you. point, right, is it might be a comparable, and if you were worried about absolutely going over seven for Hronik or getting close to eight, maybe you can look at this and say, okay, well, you're still going to give him more because he'll be younger and he has the higher scoring rates. But maybe you can get it down to, you know, seven flat or 6.8 or something that can only be true based on this deal if you're also going eight years. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's really becomes a question for me. If you want this to be a comp, how willing are you to go the full eight years? Because I don't think there's any question. I mean, they they did the sign and trade to go eight years to keep this the AAV down. Right. We all understand that's the dynamic here. So if you want to make this a comparable in your favor for Philip Ronick. You have to go max eight, term. It starts yeah. with an eight-year deal. Which is, I mean, at least Ronick's younger, right? Like, at mm-hmm. least you're looking at um, less seasons after the age of 30. So, but yeah, I mean, I just think the production profile on Ronick puts him in a slightly different category. And then we'll see what his platform year production looks like. Because if this team you know, is a top 10 offense again, whether or not he gets power play time, um, you know, you're, you're probably looking at another 35-ish point season, uh, 35, 45 points in that range, right? And then you're talking about a fourth, cons- like a third consecutive 40-point season for Heronic, and then that's a different thing entirely than Damon Severson, who's had, what, one 40-point season in his career? So... You know, I, I think Hironik's still in a different conversation because of his production profile, provided that he continues to produce this year without without the same level of power, power play, play opportunities that he's had in the have. past. Yeah. yeah, for sure. That's gonna be uh, that's gonna be a big part of it for him. It's if he can sustain that type of per game well, scoring. And I'm really curious to see if the Canucks go with a two defense setup. I don't know, man. Like, I, I, I know you're not saying, and they should do it, right? No, you're they should not. See. They specifically should not do it. It's just, 
there's a reason nobody in the NHL does it anymore for any for any length of time, right? Teams will flirt with it. Teams might use it as a, a different look here and there, but it's nobody's first choice power play configuration. And the thing with the Canucks, okay, yeah, you have an open spot where Bo Horvat left, so theoretically you could change up your personnel a little bit. But you still have, you know, for example, Brock Besser on your team right now, who's a, a handy power play guy, right? Like, it's not like you're not going to have skilled options as the fourth forward on the power play. Yeah, although, you know, we don't know who's going to be running the Canucks power play. Like, I literally can't tell you which coach is going to be running it in Jason King's absence now mm-hmm. that he's left the organization. And whoever it is, like whether it's Adam Foote or Sergey Gonchar, they've never done it before. We, d- we don't have a sense of what that looks like in terms of tactical preferences or being able to go back and look at the history, I, I, you know, I'm really curious. I just think, like, it makes you less potent, right? And from an area that could at least theoretically be a strength oh, no, for I, you. Look, they should not do it. It makes you less potent, and it hurts your negotiation position with Ronick, which sh- is so key for you. They should not do it. But say it's Sergey Gonchar. Like, Gonchar played in an era where two defensemen often played on the power play. You know, I, I'm... I'm I, I'm telling you, like, that sort of thing can happen, even though Tockett's a super experienced power play coach who ran a 4-1 yeah. usually in Pittsburgh. I mean, I feel like Tockett would be like, hey, Sergey, we're in a new <laughs> we're in a new well, uh, time here. His, his Coyotes occasionally went 3-2. I mean, there are teams that go 3-2, right? They're, the Florida pow- Panthers power play has Brandon Montour in a forward spot and Barkov in a defender spot. So, I mean, you know, it's not outrageous – to, to think that they might do it, especially because who's the fourth forward? We don't even know. Well, except you have a guy, assuming he's here, in Brock Besser, who's a, a logical fit there. He's a logical fit. He's a logical fit on the power play. Anyway, if logical fits always worked in hockey, I mean, we wouldn't have a lot to talk about. <laughs> uh, we'd still find a way. We'd still find I, a way to fill the time. I like there's uh, there's um, someone on Twitter responded to our discussion about um, I don't know, optionality or whatever that was posted with, if the Canucks are good next year, what will you guys talk about? And someone responded to them, probably about how they're good. <laughs> and that I, sounds awesome. And I've replied to them, don't threaten me with a good time. Like That sounds fantastic. Are you kidding me? I would love to talk about a good hockey team all the time. To to a bunch of excited fans? That sounds great. Fantastic. That sounds fantastic. Uh, speaking of good hockey Are teams, you ready to say the Canucks are a Stanley Cup contender now? Like that'll that's like the you know late January talking point. Yeah. No, that's that's no. Your dream is to be first on it when they are good. Well, that's like I the, have lots the of whole, dreams. The holy grail. Okay, I, have, I have lots of dreams. one of your dreams. Yeah, I have lots of dreams, including the one where I'm a fly, and then I can't figure out if I'm a man or a fly. <laughs> okay, easy there, buddy. Uh, all right, we <laughs> easy will... there, Kafka. <laughs> uh, is a beetle in Kafka? No, I believe in the metamorphosis. Sand. Get, wow. your re- get your references if you're gonna try wow. to bring your big super your big, big brain literary references yeah all right at least come correct <laughs> it better have been a beetle i know now i'm actually worried <laughs> it, might, it might have been a cockroach or something i don't know We'll look that up in the break. Uh, final segment coming up, though. We'll get a little into what we saw in uh, Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Final. Uh, continue taking your texts as well. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. Welcome back to Canucks Talk. 
Sportsnet 650, live from the Kintech studio. Your home for hot Beatles talk. Hot, hot uh, early 20th century nah. literary fiction nah, talk here. Nah. Uh, 650, nah, 650 nah, is nah. the Dunbar Lumber text line, by the way. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online. At You've tuned in just in time for Jane, Jamie's public apology to yes, me for being I, wrong. Uh, tried to correct you on the nature of the bug that the main character turns into in, in Franz Kafka's legendary <laughs> legendary work, The Metamorphosis. And? You said a fly. I said it was a beetle. Uh, it's, in fact, unspecified. <laughs> so there is no right answer. It's just a big insect. I wasn't wrong. A big, generic insect. Uh, we did have people texting in. Uh, one, which I love, first of all, that our audience is like, oh, I got takes. I got takes about, about Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. Uh, somebody turned in, it's a cockroach he turned into boys. Also incorrect. Popularly by... popularly depicted as a cockroach. Yeah. Um, Just like how, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes never uses the words, it's elementary mm, Watson. And he's probably in not. Arthur Conan Doyle's yeah, actual like text. The hat probably is like an invention of the the one actor who played him basil rathbone there you go yes um brad and cloverdale says english lit degree here in the metamorphosis he turned into a cockroach finally got some use out of that degree incorrect brad (laughs) he did not sorry buddy (laughs) (laughs) don't worry i have an english degree too and i got it wrong as well so we're in the same boat brad um anyways i always enjoy when people text in about uh Text in just about like random literary stuff uh, into the into the show. It's it, it's fun. It's nice to mix. Uh, see, we're not we're not all just like stereotype jocks. You know what I mean? We all oh, have yes. interests because everyone because everyone who listens to our show thinks I'm a stereotypical stereotype jock. jock. Well, hey, the- you're, you're dating Doja Cat, so you're doing you're doing something right. Yeah, nailing it. <laughs> Anyways, um, keep your texts coming in. So okay, we have a series. And really, surprisingly so, because it looked for a long time last night like Florida was going to go gently. Florida was not going to put up a fight, not going to get back in the series. It was going to be 3-0 Vegas. Matthew Kachuk, another huge clutch moment in these Stanley Cup playoffs. And then we should also add Carter Hagee, who's been really clutch as well, getting the overtime winner. They survive somehow. They win 3-2, and they make it 2-1. But the interesting thing is, okay, so it's, I mean, even I was just saying, like, hey, we've got a series now. They're back in it. I also thought that might have been the game, even though they lost, where the talent gap between Vegas and Florida was most obvious. Like, I I still came away from it thinking, like, Vegas is just way better than them. Vegas has a a much better team than Florida. So, one, so first of all, Paul Maurice kept forechecking, which was the right call. I mean, mm-hmm. good for him. I thought it slowed down the Vegas uh, breakout, especially in the first part of the game. I think it's fair to say that Vegas kind of figured it out and found their footing as the game went on. By the time Florida, you know, empties the net, it it easily could have been 4-1. Like, for me, that was Bobrovsky's best game since the Leafs series. I thought that was more impressive than anything he did against Carolina. Mm-hmm. And Barkov ate Jack Eichel's lunch. Jack Eichel still obviously made a huge impact on the game, right? We saw that beautiful seeing-eye seam pass to Marsh. So, you know, uh, this isn't to criticize a really excellent player. Uh, But I think it's fair to say that 
<laughs> when you have a head-to-head matchup, Barkov versus Eichel, and the Panthers attempt 10 shot attempts, and the Golden Knights only attempt one, and it's a, a game in which they don't manufacture a five-on-five goal, that worked. That mm-hmm. was a that was a Paul Maurice found a vein there and should keep drawing from it. So. I do think there's some work to do for Vegas. I just felt it felt to me like Vegas, who have scored 56 five on five goals across 18 games going into last night, were due a game where the bounces didn't go their way. And like, I think about that chance they have late in the first period mm-hmm. where it's like sort of a rebound. One of the uh, Mark Stone, I think, sort of bats it out of the high slot down low, and it's kind of an outnumbered situation 2 1. And the Vegas player attempts a sort of a one-touch pass cross-crease, and it just doesn't quite work. The puck's just bouncing, in the, and it's just like there were all these chances at chances that Vegas just narrowly couldn't get to. Yeah. And and it feels like regression. Like, it just feels like it, there was inevitably going to be a game where that happened to them. I still think they're fine, but the Barkov-Eichel th- dynamic is the one thing that I think Florida can reasonably hang their hat on. Obviously, in addition to, like, Matthew Kachuk being amazing and Bobrovsky sort of finding his form – but like that to me tactically anyway is like okay this is going to be interesting because on Panthers ice anyway b- the ability to control that matchup could make things could make the sledding materially more difficult for the Golden Knights. The thing was even with that they were still so roundly outplayed for out, after the first period really like Florida played really well in the first period but then Vegas I thought really dominated the game at five on five. Now, obviously late in the third period, maybe that changes a little bit, but the thing is like, as you're describing, you know, Bobrovsky played really well. Vegas had all this regression. Barkov wins his matchup decisively against Jack Eichel. And it was still such a narrow thing. Like it was so <laughs> Vegas still felt really comfortable to me uh, to win that game until Matthew Kachuk scores that tying goal. So with all of those things going right, it was still really hard for Florida to win. And that's what makes me not particularly concerned for Vegas for the rest of the series. You never know, right? Because it's hockey and random things happen. And we've seen, you know, Bobrovsky can get hot and all of that. But I still have a ton of confidence in Vegas. The thing that really stood out to me, and I know they end up giving up the tying goal in the six on five scenario, but you know, so often teams will play a kind of very cynical game when they're protecting the lead uh, in the third period, especially in a high stakes game. And it's all oh, make them co- make them go 200 feet every time. But really what that amounts to is you're penned in your zone for 90 seconds and you barely clear you barely clear it out. And finally, you're able to, uh, you know, get the puck down in the zone. I thought Vegas played a really, really perfect kind of tight defensively conservative game without being cynical about it, without being cowardly about it, right? They were still trying to take their chances where they could find them. They're just so smart with the puck and they make the right play so often. That's why I didn't really believe Florida was going to come back and tie it until they did. But again, like it all comes back to the same thing, which was even in defeat, I saw enough from Vegas to not make me particularly concerned uh, about them finding a way to close out this series. And I mean, if anything, like, I wouldn't be surprised if they put up a crooked number against uh, against well, that, and the Panthers. The one thing I'd say is when Vegas has been pushed in this playoff, they've tended to respond and kind of leave no doubt. And I would expect we see one of those like Golden Knights at their best level efforts in game four. Now, you know, Bobrovsky could stand on his head, what have you. But I think about, you know, that um, 5-1 loss 
to Winnipeg to open the playoffs, mm. right? And then they come back and just stomp them, like absolutely crush them, and it's 5-2, but the two Winnipeg Jets goals, there was absolutely zero drama there. Or after they lost 5-1 to the Oilers in yep. game two of that series and then come out and win 5-1, right? Um, and then obviously game six against Dallas, which was maybe the most dominant playoff performance I've seen, like in years, honestly in years. Like I can't even recall seeing a game in which one side so clearly over, was like overmatched in a, in a very they like didn't belong on the same ice surface it was a, wild in a very similar circumstance too where it's like the other team has kind of got back into the series but they need to win one more for us to actually let them back in the series mm-hmm. and we're not not only are we not going to let them do that we're going to like rip their heart out at the same time totally. right? and that's the that's the situation Florida has is in going into game four it's like okay you got one you really still need to win this one to have a chance in the series and it feels like Vegas has been there and they know what to do in these circumstances well and so the flow of that game last night was interesting first of all it was wildly interrupted by officiating it was um you know not, really wonky officiating not it was not the most entertaining. <laughs> you don't say. I thought it was not the most entertaining game either but when Florida started the game and it felt like they were all over the golden knights but only had one goal to show for it it felt like vegas had taken their punch and then when vegas went up 2-1 i wasn't surprised like at that point i really thought the panthers were in significant trouble when they couldn't add to that one goal lead despite you know having the balance of chances and like vegas only had one shot in the first 10 minutes and on and on um now the panthers have done their resilience thing 7 and 0 in the overtime. Imagine going on a playoff run and just not losing in overtime. I know, right? Wild. Just never having that heartbreak moment. It always goes your way. It's incredible. 7 and coin flips in a row basically. And I don't oh, want yeah. I don't want to diminish the skill no, and no, everything, no, no. but like it's basically that. I, well, and, and like some of them were true coin flips. Like by yes. the time you get to 4 OTs. Yeah, then it, you're in real. Right? It's like, like Seth Jarvis just denting the post, right? I mean, uh, truly, like this was pure wild. randomness territory. 100%. Yeah. So you know, it's nice to play with a loaded set of dice for sure. Um, but, you know, I, I it felt to me when when Florida couldn't take advantage of their edge early and the crowd's energy, I really did think that they were in trouble. Panthers are never really in trouble, it seems. <laughs> they have nine lives. Cats have nine lives and the Panthers have used all of them. Um, but I do think I do think they're in for a totally different task in game four. Like, I think this is going to be a very telling like Saturday. Now I can't wait because I think that's going to be an extremely telling game. I think Vegas is going to turn up and it'll just be about whether or not the Panthers can contain that can hold that, whether they get enough from Bobrovsky, whether they are even in a position to get lucky or if Vegas luck proofs the result by playing the way they have whenever their back has been even close to the wall in throughout this playoffs. Yeah. That's certainly what I would be betting on. I mean, look, when you have Matthew Kachuk playing the way he is, and seemingly whenever you need a big goal, there he is hey, scoring it. You hey, never know. Hey, my Matthew Kachuk plus twelve hundred. If you there like, you the, if you like the Panthers to make it a series, that's looking good. No, it's looking interesting. Although somebody did text in to say that you lost them a substantial. I know. Amount of money I'm sorry about that. On the six goal over. Well, I just hope you're exaggerating game, the the amount there, Keith. I won't read no. it on air. That that game though. Um, yeah, I mean, that's too bad. The Although game... he added in an LOL after, so he can't be that broken up about it. No. He's laughing about it, at least. Well, the the, the game just had such a... Yeah, Ma- Matthew Kachuk, by the way, now at plus 370. There you go. So those odds have uh, significantly mm-hmm. uh, changed. Interesting. Jack Eichel now at plus 1,000, by the way, if you're looking for... 
the long shot bet to come out of these guys. I still would. Pay, I still like that. That's interesting value to me at this point, right? And Ten like, to one. Yeah. yeah. Like, and I get it that Marchessault has scored all the goal, goals, but like so many of them have been off beautiful feeds from Jack Eichel. You know what I mean? And they're like, oh, Jack Eichel hasn't scored in a long time. Yeah, but he's playing really well and he's getting primary assists and his line is is scoring all the time and he's the center. Like he gets credit for that. Yeah. It's not just about the the final guy to put the touch in. I get it. Goals are important, but No, but Mark Marcheso, Marcheso, there's something inevitable about this guy right now. I guess. Um 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, get your thoughts in here. Final few minutes of the show of the week. Uh, I did want to mention this around the NHL. The Ottawa Senators sale process continues to be bizarre and play out in public as uh, one of the four remaining bidders, uh, Toronto businessman and the high Steve bidder. Apostolopoulos, who's presumed to be the high bidder. Uh, I've seen reports that he's the only one who had a billion dollar offer on the table for the Ottawa Senators. The hmm, high despite bidder. Despite that information that came out about Ryan Reynolds? Uh-huh, the high Weird. bidder. And he has now apparently walked away from the process and specifically out of frustration with how long it's been taking, with it dragging on and on and on. Uh, there's the other bid, which the name is uh, Nico Sparks. Well, it was oh, the Nico, Nico Sparks, Sparks one, yeah. which seems to be basically out of it because of questions about the financing. So you're down to these two bids. And the weird it's so weird to have the big bidder at this point walk away. But I can understand it from his perspective because if you have would, the biggest bid. Yeah, it's like, well, I win. Either say, either give it to me or say, no, we want a higher offer or something. Like, what's the process here? It's like, no, I've won. I, I had the highest offer. I should get to buy the team. And if you're if you're in his shoes, you're probably thinking, well, I'm only kind of being kept around to try to juice the numbers from the owner they actually want, and why do I want to be a party to that? You've noticed no PR organization representing either the network whose airwaves we're appearing on right now mm-hmm. or the U.S. networks have touted ratings in the Stanley Cup final. Mm-hmm. That's always a bad sign. That's like when a movie reviewer doesn't release, you know, like a movie review's like embargoed yes, right, yes. right till opening day. Um, that's always a bad sign. The Arizona thing continues to be pear-shaped, to put it mildly. This sale process continues to be murky at best. We've got another agitated uh, bidder Mm -hmm. who's left the process entirely. I don't know that that reflects well on how this has all gone. And I'll tell you right now, it does not. To have somebody who is willing to go this deep in the process and make the kind of bid it's reported he made, like which would have been an incredible headline for you. We sold the Ottawa Senators for over a billion dollars. Like That would have been amazing. And for all the talk we hear about the number one thing the league cares about in the league offices and the owners is franchise value, and somehow you couldn't either just sell it to him for that much or leverage his interest into getting that from somebody else, and he walks away in frustration publicly, that's tough. That is brutal. Another year of no cap growth. Mm-hmm. Officiating a real storyline coming out of both games two and three of the cup final. I mean, look, no one's ever made a lick of money betting against Gary Bettman, but it does feel like the storm gathers here. Like, I, I really do think there's a storm gathering now around the NHL commissioner 
um, and one that's going to be worth being mindful of, right? Like, I'm not criticizing even the league's handling in any of these respects so much as I'm looking at the board, right? And I'm looking at the board, and I, I mean, for the first time since what? For the first time in 20 years, I'm like, there are some real challenges on the horizon for this commissioner individually, mm. specifically. And I'm curious to see how it all plays out. Well, I out. think, again, all the other ones, you can kind of see how owners would rationalize away, right? Especially for Gary Bettman, who's been there, who's been so solid, wielded so well, much influence, and, made and, him so much money. Yep. The sale process one, though, like that cuts to the heart of what all these guys are here for, which is to see those franchise values go up. You know what I mean? And for it to play out so publicly, and it, it at the beginning of this process, well, the, it seemed like it was going to be a home run it for better, the NHL. It better land. Like, it better land. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, because at the end of the day, if you still get a really good price for it, we'll kind of all forget this stuff. Not not Apostolopoulos and Ryan Reynolds. They won't forget it. I don't know. I, don't, I still think that's... At the end of the day, if you have lots of people walking away who can make billion-dollar offers, that's also two less names in your Rolodex. Yep, for the next time, that's true. I will, but I think it will go. It would go a long way to papering over concerns with the owners. It's like, okay, that wasn't an ideal process, but we still got the landmark number for the Ottawa Senators. We can live with that, right? Versus the process was wacky, and then the number was. Not what we were expecting and well, not good for us. That's a real problem. Then. Here's the other potential real problem, right? The Ottawa Senators, yes, not a marquee franchise. Mm-hmm. But you know who else is not a marquee franchise? The Charlotte Hornets. Mm-hmm. And they're also on up to uh, to market at the moment, right? Say say they end up at $750 million. The Charlotte Hornets. No, the oh, Ottawa, the Ottawa Senators. Senators. Yeah, But the Charlotte Hornets go for $2.5 billion. That's the sort that's of thing. A tough look. That's that's the sort of thing that I think will furrow some eyebrows. That's the sort of storm I'm talking about. Yeah, like one where people begin to say, "What's going on here?" Yeah. Well, because it's the counter. I think we've talked about this on the show before, but it's the counterfactual argument, right? Because yes, franchise values have gone through the roof for the NHL, but not to the pace they have in other major sports. And if that, and if you see a really kind of crystal clear demonstration of that, like what you're talking about, two non-marquee franchises selling at very similar times in the NBA and the NHL and the the discrepancy in the price like that can be the kind of thing that kind of gets your your mind going or things like or things like ESPN won't move a baseball game between mm. last place teams right like all of this soft power eroding stuff starts to matter when it comes to corporate leadership and potential challenges to it right and that's where that's where I, I just think there's choppy water ahead for the league and a lot of different on a lot of different fronts that, you know, this could all go away if they're navigated ably. Bettman has navigated a million of these <laughs> over the course of, a, mm-hmm. of, of his career as NHL There's commissioner. He's stuck around as long as he has. Uh, he, uh, one of the ultimate survivors. So, but, but it just feels like there's at least a chance that this tilts to become a critical mass now. That's how I see it anyway. Yeah. Keith Texan, uh, honestly, the league letting Ryan Reynolds walk is absolutely going to be a terrible decision long term. Yes. Uh, watching him announce the United Airlines partnership with Wrexham, imagining that with the NHL, absolutely terrible move. It's hard not to see it in those terms well, right I, now, right? The thing is, is if you do a deal with Ryan Reynolds, the Ottawa Senators become a Disney Plus property. Yep. Like, that's pretty tough to beat. Yeah. <laughs> 
in terms of well, and in terms of like a, ephemeral marketing, you have method. like a super charismatic, incredibly popular high spokesperson star, like who's a spokesperson for that team, but also for your league. Oh, hundred percent, right? Yeah, who like can go on late night talk shows and talk about how great the NHL is and use all of those different opportunities to pump it up in a way no other owner is going to come close to doing, right? And like. It's big for the Senators, but it would also just be massive for the league to have that guy in your corner. I don't, it, who knows? Maybe we'll hear the whole story someday about how that fell apart and why he walked away. But it, right now, it looks like a huge missed opportunity. And it's Well, even- we have some information because they asked for an exclusive negotiating yeah. window and that was denied. Why do you ask for an exclusive negotiating, uh, negotiating window? Usually because you think your bid's being used to drive up the price. Right. To, to not let this. This is just me. To not let what has come This is not me reporting happen. anything. This is me interpreting publicly available information. But that would be, you know, if, if I was reading about uh, a, like a merger's acquisition story in the business section of the newspaper uh, or, or the business section of a website page, <laughs> um, this would that would be my read. And I think that fits with Apostolopoulos walking away too, right? Like, hold on a second. I had the biggest bid here. It's not going anywhere. While other people scramble to try to find financing and stuff, are am I just being used as as leveraged for those other players, basically? And I don't know. It's a, it's a weird look for the NHL. It's just weird that it's not done yet. Also, at this point, with the way that it is dragging on, uh, we're gonna wrap it up there. Thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you to everyone for texting in, for putting up with our uh, our literary references and our Franz Kafka debate. We appreciate it. Have a fantastic weekend. We will be back on Monday. It wasn't a debate. It. it was a factual error. You've got it on Sportsnet six fifty.